Hey, friends. Um, This morning's scripture passage comes from Numbers chapter 14, verses 36 through 45. And the men who Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation complain against him by bringing a bad report about the land, the men who brought an unfavorable report about the land died by a plague before the Lord. But Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, alone remained alive of those men who went out to spy spy out the land. When Moses told these words to all the Israelites, the people mourned greatly. They rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country, saying, Here we are. We will go up to the place that the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. But Moses said, Why do you continue to transgress the command of the Lord? That will not succeed. Do not go up, for the Lord is not with you. Do not let yourselves be struck down before your enemies. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites will confront you there, and you shall fall by the sword, because you have turned back from following the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, even though the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and Moses had not left the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them, pursuing them as far as Hormah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Warren, for helping out in worship this morning and giving leadership. I really love um, about our congregation that we have such a talented group so that ministers, myself, Pastor Leslie and Pastor Lindsay, Gretchen, all of us, we can sometimes take a different perspective on a Sunday morning, and it really helps in the way that we see you all. Uh, so I'm glad that you get to see from a different angle this morning. Leslie, I'm seeing from every angle this morning. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. We are uh, still in the book of Numbers. We're in the same story. This is week three of the same story we've been telling. If you haven't been here the last two weeks, no big deal, because I'll catch you up really quick, and then we're going to take off from this point in the story. But this is, uh, well, you know what this picture is, skidding the cart before the horse, which I knew that saying, but until I drew it, I didn't know how ludicrous that saying was. And that's kind of what this sermon feels like. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Numbers uh, chapter 13. In 14, we read from 14 this morning. Let me tell you what happened and how we got to this point in the story. Uh, Israelites are this group of sort of nomadic tribes that have been freed from slavery in Egypt. And they've been on the move toward this land that God promised them. So God, their God, known as Yahweh, God of the mountain, has freed the people from slavery in Egypt. And it's promised them that he's taking them to another land, to this land that is like overflowing with abundance and goodness. And this is going to be their new home. And so they have this journey through the wilderness. The wilderness is this place in between two worlds, between Egypt and between the promise. They're going to travel in this wilderness toward this new land. They make a stop at the mountain of God known as Horeb or Sinai. They receive the law and the covenant in that space. Then they head out to the land. Now, God's promised this. God didn't say there was like certain conditions upon receiving this gift. Just simply, that's what you will receive as you enter into this new land. Uh, but this, doesn't, this is not a journey that goes well for them. If you've been with us the last two weeks, last three weeks, last year, you know that time after time... When Israelites, just like all of us, take a step toward what God has called us to, we often trip 
along the way. And so they do. But they get to the edge of the land, right? So there's this like land of milk and honey is what it's called, which is just fancy Bible language for land of everything you need. I don't know what a diet of milk and honey would look like. It sounds fantastic for like three days. And then it sounds like it would be intense. But there's also big grapes. There's all kind of good stuff. But the Israelites, they get to the edge of the land and they say, we need to make sure that this land is safe for us to go into. Now, God didn't say anything about it being safe. He just said it was going to be good. But so what they do is they appoint the sort of heads of all of the tribes, the princes of Israel, these 12 spies, and they send them out into the land. They're supposed to go grab a report, take some pictures, write down some notes, bring it back, tell the people about it. So they do. They get back and they tell them, like, listen, the land is what? What do they find the land to be? Good. The land is good. The land is tov is the word in Hebrew. It's really good. However, there are also giants there. This land is good, but it is terrifying. And they say, we should not go into the land. That's where we've been for the last two weeks, is the spies telling the rest of the congregation of Israel that God's promises are only half true. They're halfway good, and then the rest of them are terrible and dangerous. And in fact, they should probably go back home to Egypt, because at least there they knew what to expect. That's where we've been the last two weeks. Now today we're going to pick up that same story. Chapter 14. You heard the reading this morning starting in verse 36. By the way, this whole story is not make God super jazzed. God is not excited about everything that's just happened in this story. In fact, God has had enough. And God and Moses keep getting into these scuffles about the people. Like, this is ridiculous. This is ludicrous. Moses, you take the people. I don't want them anymore. Moses is like, no, God, you take the people. I don't want them anymore. It is sort of like divorced parents with a really frustrating child. That's kind of the story that's being told. In fact, Moses is like, am I the mother that's supposed to suckle these children? And God's like, am I the mother that's supposed to suckle these children? One of us is going to have to take responsibility for this thing. God's ready to wipe them out, which is a different sermon that I don't want to preach today. (laughs) But that happens in the text. God says to Moses, like, listen, how about if we just start over, press reset with you, like we pressed reset with Noah, and then we just start this thing over, because this group is a lost cause. And Moses, thank goodness for Moses, thank God for Moses, we could say in church, uh, says, how about no? Let's not kill them all. Because if we do that, God, everyone's going to hear. And they're going to know what kind of God you are, what God you've claimed to be. A God who's forgiving, who's merciful, abounding in loving kindness. Moses repeats back to God God's own words from the Exodus. And so God relents, the text says. God says, I will forgive. However, there are consequences for what has happened. And now we get to our part of the story says in chapter 14. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, this is verse 26, how long shall this wicked congregation complain against me? I've heard the complaints of the Israelites, which they complain against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, I will do to you the very things I heard you say. That's bad news, by the way. What God is saying is all the things you imagine are going to be true. There's something dangerous about speaking a certain kind of reality into the world. We've talked about this before. The very things that I heard you say 
that's what I'm going to do. Your dead bodies are going to fall in this wilderness. And all of your numbers included in the census from 20 years old and upwards who've complained against me. None of you are going to come into the land which I swore to settle you. Except for Joshua and Caleb. The little ones, your children, who you were so scared were going to be carried off as booty in the new land. They are going to enter into the land. But you're not going to enter in. And it says at the end, verse 35. Surely I will do thus to all this wicked congregation gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end. And there they shall die. This is, um, this is a bad story. It's a bit of a tragedy. Let's go to the next slide. Verse 35 says that something has ruptured in time. And this congregation has come to the end of their part of the story. You will come to your full end in this wilderness and there you will die. This wilderness has always been a tenuous place. It always is a tenuous place. A place in between. And in between is the place of sort of like melting and liquefying. Of identity, of future, of past. So that something new can be made. But that process of undoing is painful. And something has to come to an end before a new thing can begin. Now I want you to follow with me because it starts to get a little bit funny. Verse 36. The men whom Moses sent out to spy the land, who returned and made the congregation complain against him by bringing a bad report about the land. The men who brought an unfavorable report about the land died by a plague before the Lord. Did you catch that in the text? There's this funny thing that happens in the Hebrew Bible. It happened in what we call the Akedah, which is the story of the binding of Isaac. Do you all remember the story of the binding of Isaac? It's when Abraham's told to sacrifice his son, also a really troubling sermon that I'm not going to give today, uh, and to sacrifice his son. And there's this repeated phrase that happens as though Abraham doesn't know what God is talking about. It happens again here. Listen to it again. Moses, the men whom Moses sent to spy out on the land. You know, the ones who returned and made the congregation complain against him by bringing a bad report about the land. You know, the men who brought an unfavorable report about the land. Can you feel the text being insanely redundant and patronizing to us, the reader? Because it imagines, often this happens in the text, it imagines our dialogue with the scriptures. And so you could imagine inserting a sort of like rebuttal to each of these clauses. The men whom Moses sent out to spy out the land. Well, which men? There were lots of men. Can you be more specific, Bible? You know, the ones who returned and made the congregation grumble against God and Moses by bringing a report or a word about the land. Well, then our rebuttal would be, was it a good report or a bad report? Your text might say an unfavorable report, but the language behind it is simply they brought a report. They brought a word. What, what kind of word? And so the text clarifies again, there is no escaping who is being talked about in this text. Okay, fine. It's the ones who brought the evil report. Those are the ones we're talking about. It's getting really specific and honing in on both where the rupture has happened and where the consequences are about to be visited. The language for what has happened with the spies is really specific. Because when they come back from spying, they tell the people, the land is good, but the land is occupied by giants. Which is true. Like, on the face of it, that would be true. Because if the land is good, the land has been feeding people protein shakes day in and day out. And they have gotten really strong. And the soil is really good. And so the soil grows really good food. It is a hearty land. But they don't just say that. In fact, it says that they start to whisper to one another. Almost like on the sidelines. Start to spread chatter. And this is where things get really dangerous. And they don't simply spread chatter. They spread raw, evil speech. 
And here is where the people become their own undoing. So much of the Old Testament, so much of Torah, is concerned with language, with the power of language, with what words can do. So when God creates the world, God creates the world with language and calls it good. And when the world is being undone, it is undone in language, in speech that is imprecise or that is false or that is degrading or that is destructive. And that's what happens in the wilderness is the people speak with a kind of language that disintegrates reality. They whisper evil to their neighbor. If I mean, that is like the definition of our media culture right now. Just whispering and sniping evil all across the world. And it's disintegrating, right? Can you, you can feel that. I can feel that. They can feel that. That's where this story has been. And so they get what they ask for. It says that of those ten, the twelve who went out to spy and were whispering evil, two were spared, Joshua and Caleb, because they say, like, we should go in and take the land. They believe God, have faith in God. But the other ten, it says that a plague is visited upon them and they die. Where is the land of plagues? Egypt. And what do they crave but to go back to Egypt? And to go back to Egypt is to become the space, the place, the home of death. And so they're given what they asked for. If you would like to go back to the place where plagues reign and where the sea swallows you, then you can find that world even in the desert. You can make hell wherever you are. And so that's what they do. The song, you can't hide from yourself everywhere you go, there you are. You can't hide from yourself everywhere you go, there you are. Yeah. I don't know that song, but it sounds like maybe they wrote it from Numbers 14. Yeah. <laughs> the people mourn and cry all night long because it's not just any ten people who have died. It is the princes of Israel. These are the heads of all of the tribes. Imagine assembling the best of the best, sending them out, and they fail so spectacularly that they are the ones that are wiped out. This is terrible. It's like the cream of the crock people who have died, and so they wail, and they mourn, and they cry all night long. That's what the text says. And then they wake up with a new kind of resolve. And this is where things get even more screwy. They say this phrase right here. Hinenu. Hinenu is a plural form of a very, very important and common phrase in the Hebrew Bible known as hineni. Now, you can say that with me. Oh, hold on. I'm going to ask you to say it, but I want you to be careful when you say it because it means something, right? Words matter. So, hineni. Do you know what you said? What if I had made you curse in Hebrew and you didn't know? No, it means here I am. It actually means behold me. It's what people say when God calls them, like particularly the prophets. If God commissions a prophet and the prophet has to decide whether or not he or she are in, whenever they decide they are in, they stand and they say, Hineni, behold, I'm ready. So the people, they put on the language of prophets, the language of the brave, the language of those who will follow God, and they say, Hinenu, here we are, behold, we're ready. Okay, all right. And so then... We're going to go up to the place the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. Um, It's really important. Ken, how long ago was it where you preached on the passage with the cloud and the fire that lifts and goes forward? And the people, they either move with God and they wait for God to move. There is this order to their movement as a nation, as a tribe. And it's that they follow God. Don't get ahead of God. Don't get too far behind God. But when God is moving, then you are moving. 
God is not moved in this story. God is settled in the camp. And so when they rise up early and say, Hinenu, we're ready. Let's go take the land. Show us where the hill is. We're really sorry because we sinned. God is, is not with them. I love the language for um, because we've sinned. There's a lot of words in Greek and Hebrew for sin. And they use the one that has a, um, well, I'll just show you how I would translate it. Will you go to the next one? Because that's not the next one. There it is. That's what they say. We made a whoopsie. It's a, <laughs> if you ever apologize like this, I'm sorry that your feelings are hurt, is the apology. That's what they're doing. What's the least amount of contrition that we can withstand before we can just move on from this? My bad, God. Now let's go. And so they charge ahead. Moses says to them, which should be the most pregnant of phrases, God is not with you. Our central hope is the language of God's presence with us. When the New Testament starts to talk about what it means that God is present in a new way with us, it uses the language Emmanuel. It's the word that gets applied to Jesus. And that means literally God with us. John Wesley, when he's dying, the last phrase he utters is the best of all is that God is with us. So when Moses tells them God is not with you, That should have been an arresting phrase. It's the kind of phrase that should force the hearer to stop and sit and take stock of what has happened. God is not where you are. And the place you are running towards is not going to get you any closer to the divine. Moses has given them multiple warnings, but they don't heed it. And so they charge the hill to try to take it. What they do is they have godless plans. And everything up until this point has been God's leading them. They did not free themselves from Egypt. They were simply miserable there. God hatches the plan and God brings it to completion. God and Moses lead them out, but they decide that they're ready to take this thing on their own. Now, there are two things that happen in the story of the spies, and it is the two tendencies that we often find ourselves battling with. There are two instincts when faced with fear and anxiety and threat. And you know what these are. What are they? Because they rhyme. They rhyme with, with might. Yeah, fight or flight. Either you stay and you struggle, you lash out, or you flee. This is exactly what the people do. One author says that the book of Numbers, and in fact, the Jewish religion for which we inherit in Christianity, uh, there are two tendencies that we are always trying to overcome. And that's the, the never tendency, which is what they do first. We cannot go into that land. We have to go home. Not just we have to like get ready. We should probably stretch first and we should polish up all of our like chariots, but we should never go there. And they're rebuked for that. And so then what's the next thing they say? We should go there right away. We should go there yesterday. If not yesterday, then at least right now. Let's go. These are the two tendencies that the text is warning us against. The book of Numbers is this weird set of stories and laws and census counting and names of families. But more than anything, what it's trying to tell us is that the road to freedom is long. 
And transformation takes a long time. It is not immediate. To get from Egypt to the promised land is not but maybe a week or two's journey. It takes them 40 years. And we might hear that and say that's the punishment because they couldn't hold it together, but sometimes it just takes that long to grow up. It takes us a while to get what God's trying to tell us. The people are a people of impatience. And you have to remember this nation of Israel were it a most recent past, a nation of slaves. And that kind of oppression and slavery is a, is a, a reality of no future, of no past, of an eternal present, where this is what you do all the time, every day. Your children are going to have the same life you have, the same life your grandparents had. There is no reason to imagine or to be patient for anything. What God is trying to do is teach them how to be a free people, free to love and serve the Lord. But it takes them quite a while. I want to pause here for a second. Part of what the people are trying to do is force God's hand. If we run up ahead, then God will, God will follow. You ever done that? Just kind of like go up a little bit ahead and see if the person's following you. Maybe if you have like a pet, a dog or something, this is like the way you might get it to go with you somewhere. So what they're doing, they're treating God with a certain amount of derision. If they could force God's hand. Impatience shows up in this story. It shows up again in the New Testament. Uh, just real quickly, I want to talk about Judas Iscariot. Because this is one of these characters in the Bible that gets a, I would say, a narrow understanding of what is happening in his story. Who here uh, remembers Judas Iscariot? All right, let's talk for just a little bit about who Judas was. Uh, so when Jesus shows up on the scene, in the New Testament, there are four books that tell Jesus' story. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're the first four books in our New Testament. And this story of Jesus is the story of God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, arriving with this person known as Jesus, who then becomes the Christ or the Messiah or the anointed one. And these four stories tell this journey of Jesus' life through Israel and Palestine, toward his death, and then toward his resurrection. He has a three-year public ministry from probably the ages of about 30 to 33. And at the end of that ministry, he's crucified, he's killed, and he's buried. All of his followers, they scatter and they spread. And then the story says that three days later, Jesus is raised from the dead. We call this Easter morning or resurrection day. That's sort of like the 30-second version of what's happening in the early part of the New Testament. When Jesus begins his mission on earth, what he does is gather together 12 followers. The 12 disciples is what we would call them. And part of what is happening here is Jesus is being something like the new Moses and is gathering together the nation of Israel, reconstituted in these 12 disciples, and is going to retell Israel's story in a small, narrow way, going to re-lead them through the wilderness, lead them out of captivity, and lead them into the promised land. One of these 12's name is Judas. Now, at the time in Judaism, there are all of these different expressions of what it means to be Jewish, just like there's a lot of expressions about what it means to be Baptist, right? You can't tell what kind of Baptist is one from another until you ask them what their background or story is. So there were four principal sort of expressions of Judaism at the time. We're not going to talk about all of them, uh, but they were the Pharisees, which are like the highly religious folks, very 
sort of focused in on the law and purity codes. There are the Sadducees, which are the group that mostly will collude with the local government, with Rome. There are the Essenes. This is the group like the Amish would be. They leave. They go out into the desert, and they want to have nothing to do with the world, to say unstained. And then there's a fourth group known as the Zealots. And the Zealots are the ones who want revolution now. These are the ones who are sort of rebellious. They've got... Well, there's this super extreme version of the zealots known as the Sakari. I'm probably not pronouncing that right. But they're known as the group who wield the daggers. And they would keep like a dagger somewhere on their person hidden. And when there were these big crowds gathered, they would often go in and silently kill someone. It was sort of a, a version of domestic terrorism. Judas Iscariot belongs to which group? The zealots, yeah. Even his last name, Iscariot and Sakari, sound like they might be related. Judas is a revolutionary. Judas is impatient. Now what Judas does at the end of the story is Judas betrays Jesus. When they enter into Jerusalem at the end of each of the Gospels, Judas goes to the authorities and says, I can deliver to you the one who you were so angry with. And at a time when Jesus is in a garden, Judas comes with the powers that be, embraces and kisses Jesus, and that's the mark, that's the sign that Jesus is the one they should take, and then Jesus is arrested. Now the text says that at one point uh, that Satan overcomes Judas and drives him to this, says that there is a like a bounty that's paid, that Judas is paid, but the payment is like maybe a month's day laborer wage. It's not a lot of money. And then Judas is so broken up by what has happened that Judas ends up taking his own life. Judas comes across as a really bad guy, like the villain of the story. But he's spent years with Jesus. In fact, he spent his entire life dedicated to the cause of liberating Israel. Here's what I think Judas might have been doing. Judas might have been done with Jesus' patience and forgiveness and nonviolence. And maybe thought, if I can just force Christ's hand, what if I send the authorities in? And maybe I'll tell Peter that when they come to arrest Jesus, you should cut off one of their ears, strike them with the sword. That will get the revolution going. We're done waiting. We're in Jerusalem. We're ready to take back the throne. And so Judas forces reality into the future. Except for that's not Jesus' plan. But that impatience, that trying to force God's movement where God has not moved yet, it ends up undoing Judas. It ends up undoing this nation in the wilderness. Because part of the confusion, and this is where we enter into the story, is that we confuse liberation with transformation. They have been freed from Egypt. But that does not mean that they are now new people. It takes a long time. There is this sense. In fact, I was reading one of my favorite authors, Rabbi Sachs, former um, rabbi in the U.K., and he actually says, and I think he's right in his estimation, that Judaism is a religion of, of evolution, of patience, of God working with God's people over generations. And he says that on the face of it, Christianity seems to be a religion of instantaneous transformation. You say a prayer and then you're done. That's actually not the way that we understand Christianity, but from the outside looking in, it can seem like that. 
I always tell people when they want to join our church, when they want to get baptized, when they want to like say I'm all in with Christ, I ask them to slow down, to take stock, be patient. Understand that this is the beginning of a journey. Like at baptism, Ron, can I pick on you? Ron was baptized at Easter this year, just a few weeks ago. At baptism, there wasn't this moment when you went under and came up that you were like actually everything was done and you were ready then to go on ahead and meet God in heaven. This was the next step in your journey. And we talked about this. I talk about this to everybody who gets baptized. This is not an instantaneous cleanup. But in fact, this is a promise you're making into the future. It'd be like saying just because you said your wedding vows, you're going to be a good husband or a wife. Like, that's just not true. And if you think that, we should have a conversation with one another so that I can warn you. <laughs> Liberation leads to transformation, but it is not equal it. It takes time. In fact, it takes sometimes a lot longer than we hoped. And this is where we start to get fidgety with God's action in the world and with our speed of change. Try to force things along. Try to take the hill without God in front of us. Sometimes it takes even longer than we ever imagined. Let's go to the next one. And this starts to feel really scary. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I know that many of us in here have been praying, have been working, have been struggling with God, and do not feel any further down the road than you did yesterday or last week or a year ago. And that slow pace is mind-numbing. Sometimes it takes a long time. Sometimes it takes 40 years. Sometimes it takes the next generation. I was talking uh, a couple months ago. I preach at Atherton Baptist Homes like a few times a year. This is a retirement community in Alhambra. We've got a lot of folks who live there. And I was preaching on numbers with them, sort of a, a different sermon than we had done here. And one of the things I said to them is, because um, they're all a little bit older in life, some of them are very close to death, there are certain things that you have not been able to do that you imagined you would do. And you're going to have to trust the future to us. That there is a congregation, our congregation here, that will continue the work that you have started. And that's going to have to be okay. That the work of transforming ourselves and then transforming the world is a slow work. And the more we try to speed it up, the more damage we can do to the world. Ask anyone who's been part of like certain kinds of colonial expeditions out to save the heathen and you will understand what it means to move faster than God's time. God is patient with us and asks us to be patient with God. One of my favorite parts about being in ministry is getting to talk to folks who are in recovery. And in recovery, you, you know this, that the 12 steps that come from Alcoholics Anonymous, um, beautiful. If you don't know about this process of transformation, I, just go read about it. Meet somebody who's been moving through the steps of recovery. Listen to their stories and you will understand the length of time it takes to change, to grow up, and to accept. There is this term, I've used it before in here, uh, something called a two-stepper. Do you all remember this? It was like a year or two ago we talked about this last time. Two-stepper 
is someone who goes from step one and then immediately leapfrogs all of the 10 middle steps and goes right to step 12. Step one is the sort of recognition that you are addicted, that you are broken, that you need. Step 12 is share all that you've learned with others. Steps two through 11, that's the work of transformation. All of the assessing what's been wrong, all of the folks that you have wronged, all the things you've carried into this story, how to make amends, how to trust in a higher power, all of that is the work of change. But two-steppers, they go right from recognizing they have a problem to right to telling other people that they have a problem. And in doing so, do untold damage to one another. What I have firmly come to believe is that Christians often are guilty of being two-steppers. Did you know that God loves people who are broken? And I happen to be one of these broken people. But I'm not, let's just skip all the parts where I try to help myself grow up and trust God to grow me up. I'd like to tell you how you are now broken. And I happen to know the answer to your brokenness. I learned it in step one. And then they go off and they take that message and they carry it over here. And then they carry it over here. And no one is moving through this process of transformation. Everyone is simply jumping from liberation. God has set me free to action in the world. If you're wondering why the public face of Christianity is being drugged through the mud in the last 10, 20, or 30 years, it's because so much of Christian formation has been two-stepping, has been recognizing that God loves the world, including us, even when we fail, but then not doing any of the work of transformation, of sanctification is the church word for it, of becoming holy like God is holy, that's the Leviticus word for it, of being perfect like our Father in heaven is perfect, that's the word that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount for it, of becoming the people of God, living into how God sees us. This takes time. God's given us enough time. A lot of what we do in our congregation is that middle work, that wilderness season, to help one another grow up. And who God has called us to be. Sometimes I'll talk to folks and they'll say like, when are we going to charge the hill? We're ready to charge the hill for God. There will come a time where something will be called from you. And you will have to decide if you can answer, he nani, behold, I am ready. And I hope that when that time comes, we are ready. Now, anytime I talk about patience... And I want to be clear, I'm not talking about being patient in the world's injustices. I'm talking about being patient with your own inner transformation. But anytime I think about patience, I always think about the letter that MLK wrote from the jail in Birmingham. I went back and read it a few times this week, where he is done being patient. And I, I thought maybe this is like a challenge to what it is I'm wanting to say this morning, but in fact it's not. I went back and read it again uh, last week, and then I read it again this morning. Uh, King is writing from jail at a time when he's been working in the civil rights, hitting kind of wall after wall. And part of what he keeps hearing is, can you please quit stirring up so much trouble? You are causing people to react. And if you could just moderate your behavior, then maybe the world will change. 
Now, anyone who's worked in nonviolent resistance movements knows that's not the way that the world changed. In fact, power does not give up power without some kind of show of force. God brought the plagues, and it took ten of them. So let's just be clear about that. So it feels as though King has run out of patience for waiting for equality and for justice. But he says something at the very beginning of his letter that struck me. He said that there are always four steps to nonviolent movements. And see if you can find where our step is. So the first step is to assess where the injustice is present. To just get a lay of the land. Where can these folks not eat? Where buses are they not allowed to ride? What sorts of services are denied to them? What can our children not participate in that white children can participate in? That's pretty clear in Birmingham. Leslie, you're from Birmingham. This is still kind of the world that exists in that space. I'm from Louisiana, Mississippi. This is like our, our place. We know this. Um, so step one, assess the facts on the ground. Where is injustice present? Step two, begin to talk, to dialogue, to negotiate. Figure out if there is a way for those who hold power and those who are asking for equality and justice that they might find some common ground. But what did I say? Power does not often give up power without a struggle. So step three, when that part falls apart, and this is where we find ourselves. He calls it self-purification. And this is the piece that I think speaks most clearly to the church. It is getting ready for nonviolent action in the world. It's gathering people who are going to be involved in this direct action and saying to them, can you stand and receive violence and not return violence? Can you become non-reactive in these spaces? The word, the phrase that King says is, are you able to endure the ordeal? In Exodus earlier, two books earlier, as the people are leaving Egypt, God says to Moses, don't take them the quick way. Take them the long way. If you take them the quick way, they will enter into war and they will freak out and they will go back. Give them some time. Can you endure the ordeal? Is what King says. And then the fourth is direct nonviolent action. And so much of the time we try to figure out what is ours to do in the world. And we have lots to do in the world. God is calling us to all kinds of spaces to bring God's message of mercy and justice, of God's liberation of those who are oppressed, and that God's promise of transformation to those who are willing, that we might become the kind of people God imagines us to be. But it takes time. There's a word in the New Testament for time. There's actually two words. One is chronos, and it's the time that just goes around and around and around. It's time that is always present. The other word for time is kairos, and it means the appointed time. It's the language of when you're about to give birth. Where is Pastor Lindsay? You are moving towards kairos time. Right? Nine months of chronos, month after month, week after week. How big is the baby? How big is the baby? But at some point, the baby will arrive, and we will hit the appointed time. I know if you're anything like me, it is hard to wait, especially when God's action seems so slow. And the movement between now and God's world we hope to live in, it feels so far. And yes, there are times when we are called to charge ahead. But often the work we have to do is to be still and to trust that God is doing something even in our 
stillness. Making us ready. So that when God says, are you ready? We can answer, hinenu. Here we are. Friends, this place is a space that can ready you for the work God has for you in the world. If you trust one another, we might get there. Would you pray with me? God, we are not good at waiting for anything. Everything that we want is a moment away. Everything we hope to become, we wish that there was a pill or a 10-step program that would get us there. But the work you have is a long work and a slow work. And our time is not your time. And we confess that that frustrates us. Our pacing, our ego, our self-assessment. God, help us to be patient with ourselves as we grow up. Like adolescents whose hormones and bodies and worlds are melting. Hold us securely while we are falling apart. So that you are there to put us back together. God, we believe, but help our unbelief. And we love you, but we want to love you in a way that is more true. So see us into wholeness. Make us ready for the next step. In Christ's name, amen.